Welcome to More Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is Chester Moore. You know, I'm super excited about tonight's program because it involves something I'm actually, at the time that you're listening to this, in pursuit of, at least on a photographic side, elk. Elk are one of the greatest wildlife conservation stories in America. From what you're about to hear, there is a part of the elk conservation story that almost no one knows, and you're about to learn all about it. On the line, I have Mr. Stephen Doby. He is the conservation program manager in the eastern United States for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife. Hey, thank you. My pleasure to be here. You know, I'm really excited about this because some people probably just heard, hold on, he, did he say eastern United States of America? Yes, I did. There are elk in the eastern United States. We're going to learn a lot about that today. But Stephen, just real quick, can you give the listener, maybe doesn't know really anything about elk, basic range and kind of their original distribution like when the pilgrims landed? Yeah, elk were, you know, back in the day, they were quite widespread. We, in the east, there was an eastern subspecies, mm-hmm. um, which is now extinct. Um, however, um, they, they covered a fairly large geographic range across the U.S., of course, out west. Um, but in the east as well, <clears throat> there was open habitat, mm-hmm. um, likely more in areas than we have now. Um, we have, uh, you know, that's th- those numbers declined in a lot of the east. We see um, written records um, associated with uh, elk numbers. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these places in the east, around the southern Appalachians, especially in that eastern northern tier states um, a lot of those especially this way and, and by this way i'm centered in kentucky but okay. around the southern appalachians most records indicate those elk um, last records were you know around the time of the civil war okay um and it's a combination of factors of course we don't have detailed accounts of why those elk disappeared but mm-hmm. it, it is likely the case that it was obviously uh, not necessarily unregulated harvest because there were no harvest. You know, it's hard to call something over harvested if you have no laws to protect them. So it was really unregulated harvest mm-hmm. um, and just significant changes uh, to the habitat. Um, um, but through the, the you know advancement, a lot of these state wildlife agencies and even the federal partners that we deal with in the east, that's the Forest Service. There's there's been a concerted effort to get these animals back on the landscape. Um, and so um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has been very fortunate to have a strong member base with a keen interest in elk. And you, we combine that with these Fish and Wildlife Agency partners uh, that also wanted to put elk back on the landscape. And it just kind of just grew into this great success story here in the East. Yeah, the, the one I've been reading about the most over the years has been Kentucky. And can you yeah. kind of give us the, the example, kind of where did the Kentucky project start and where is it now? Yeah, in the in the early to mid-1990s, there were discussions about, you know, could, could we put elk back in Kentucky? Mm-hmm. And one of the main distinctions in the East that you'll see is the, you know, elk require this open field meadow habitat. Mm-hmm. And for those listeners that, that haven't been out east, that's a very limiting factor. For sure. We talk a lot in about states, turkeys on here. So yeah. 
savanna type forest is radically better for turkeys than like pine plantations that we find a lot of the southeast for example mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah. elk have well, sort of a similar situation then yeah it's like this this this, this forage that occurs on these meadows mm-hmm. fields open habitat and, and in the southern appalachians i mean we're talking that's you know a lot of a lot if not most of these areas are over 90 percent closed canopy forest mm-hmm However, the keen distinction in these southern Appalachian states has been the prevalence of uh, reclaimed coal land. Okay. And this land has been disturbed. Um, the, the tree cover, to a large extent, has been removed. Mm-hmm. And when those habitats are reclaimed, what you're left with is uh, meadow, field habitat. And so it was really a, a, a unique opportunity mm-hmm. to seize nice. that reclaimed coal habitat and focus elk restoration efforts there and it worked fantastically mm-hmm. i must say i'm biased obviously That's okay. <laughs> i mean we're talking in kentucky tens of thousands of acres in similar situations in virginia and west virginia and so in kentucky you know that manifested with um, public surveys uh, elk habitat mm-hmm. assessment social carrying capacity assessment and we found that overwhelmingly the public supported putting elk back on the landscape, um, identified a geographic area where we thought that would work, and that was the eastern part of the state okay. in the mountains because that's where the reclaimed coal habitat was. Mm-hmm. Um, prevalence of agriculture is minimal, so not likely much elk-human conflict. Yeah. And honestly, the human population density and a road density is for quite low. Mm-hmm. And so that was keyed in on as the, the restoration area. And it started out <clears throat> with the first elk put on the ground in 1997. Um, and it was, you can imagine, it was just this momentous affair. Thousands of people came out to see uh, these elk being put on the ground and they had restoration annually from 1997 till 2002 with a little over 1,500 elk put on the ground. Wow. And those were, were sourced from Arizona, mm-hmm. Kansas, North Dakota, New Mexico, Oregon, and the most coming from Utah. But um, at the time, it was a 14-county elk restoration zone. It's now grown to 16 counties at 4.1 million acres wow. in Kentucky. And uh, it's just, it's been a great success story. It, it's been tremendous. Not not just from the, the ecological side of, hey, be able to put this large mammal back in the landscape, mm-hmm. but the sincere interest it has uh, generated for hunters, sportsmen and sportswomen, and opportunities it's created. It's just been phenomenal. Now, I've heard different numbers for Kentucky. I've heard 10,000 elk in Kentucky. I've heard thirteen or 14,000 elk. What, what's the latest mm-hmm. population estimate that you're aware of? There is a, they have a couple models that mm-hmm. they run mm-hmm. based on the data collected annually. And mm-hmm. these are from radio collared animals, adult bulls, uh, cows, calves, we radio collar. And we're, we're funding some current research now to bolster that model. Um, but the most recent iteration, from my recollection, it's in the 13 to 14,000 elk range. That's impressive. Um, so it's, it, it, it is. I mean, it's the largest elk herd east of the Rockies in the U.S. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, 
it's, you know, it's the benefits have been, you know, wonderful for Kentucky, mm-hmm. but, but more so if not for other states, because this Kentucky elk herd has been used to source restoration efforts um, in other states, which has been just fantastic. And, and that's interesting in its own right. You know, like in Texas here, we brought in desert bighorns from Utah and Nevada and Arizona and different places for years. Now Texas is able to source its own desert bighorns and put in other areas of Texas, which is always, mm-hmm. you know, you want to get any population that's, you know, translocated and restored to that place. But you're actually saying now a recovered state is now contributing to other states' recovery, which is pretty awesome. Absolutely. Um, these elk here, you know, since the early two, two well, about the first release, I think was uh, in, after, between 2010 and about 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, these Kentucky elk were used to establish herds in Virginia, Missouri, and Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, cool. I, I was just up in Missouri recently in close to an area where there were some elk. Didn't see any. I was hoping I'd see some driving around or whatever. But, um, you know, there's a lot of that habitat you look in there. You think, man, an elk would be doing really good here, you know, certain spots. Um, and I guess that's kind of what you and other biologists and people have to look at. Find East, Eastern United States. Find the parts of the states that still have habitat that would work for elk, but also work for kind of the people management side. When we come back on More Outdoors, we'll continue our fascinating journey talking with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation about elk and talk about not only their return, but how there's even more coming for elk return in the eastern half of the United States of America. Welcome back to More Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. This is Chester Moore. Follow me at the Chester Moore on Instagram, Higher Calling Wildlife on Facebook, HigherCalling.net, the blog. Right now, continuing our conversation with Steve Doby of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's a huge component. And, and a lot of these states where we've considered putting elk or have put elk, um, the habitat obviously is critical. That's going to sort of make the number numbers grow or decline. Mm-hmm. But the social tolerance is, is just as important. Yeah. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And that could be from um, agricultural damage, just ornamental uh, damage, um, road incident, uh, you know, vehicle collisions. Um, a lot of things to consider. Yeah, there's a lot of things, especially you know we're talking about an animal with with a footprint here that's bigger than a white-tailed deer. You know, or a lot of the common yeah. animals people would say, an elk does alter its environment a lot more elk herds than say like whitetail or mule deer. Yeah, any, and that's the beauty of these restoration projects, in my opinion, with mm-hmm. the ultimate goal being a return this amazing large charismatic mammal mm-hmm. to the landscape, mm-hmm. but b create hunting opportunities to manage and control those population numbers mm-hmm. so it's, it's a fantastic recipe for conservation success because it generates opportunity for for hunters and and very often what i've seen is it creates a lot of opportunity to establish new public access um, elk kind of kick the door open mm-hmm. for a lot of states for creating new public access it's it's, it's great 
Well, you know, the thing oh. about the elk is I don't know one big game hunter I've ever spoken to in my entire life that didn't want to get an elk. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's kind of the one. I've never killed an elk. It's on the list. Um, mm-hmm. And I, it's almost like now, like getting an elk in an eastern state would be like a, like, you know, that'd be like an even cooler thing. Like you got one of the limited tags in the limited state. And some of these areas, like I was reading some stuff from Pennsylvania, man, there's some monster elk that are showing up in the east. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've had, I'll I'll share two stories. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had, um, let's see. And this was several years ago. You know, I I worked on the restoration project in North Carolina in Mm -hmm. Great Smoky Mountain National Park. I served as a biologist there with the park at that time. And and several years later, um, that's just, you know, that elk, herd initially started in a national park mm-hmm. so obviously no hunting those elk have spread and are widespread now outside of the park on public land private land mm-hmm. um but those elk were just getting really big uh no significant predation on adults yeah um, some great habitat and at the time and even still in north carolina they're not hunted and so we had a vehicle collision outside of maggie valley a large bull was struck and that thing um, tip the scales at uh, 998 pounds. What? Uh, That's a monster. Yeah. yeah. So um, some great potential because these elk have kind of gotten accustomed to these restored landscapes now. They're comfortable. Um, and, and, you know, with controlled hunting, it's allowed them to grow. Um, so it's been, it's been uh, pretty exciting. I think the here in Kentucky – uh, let me think. The largest bull on record. It, it's over 400 inches scored. Wow. Yeah. 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 Dudes would pay big money for an outfitter tag somewhere and, you know, uh, for, for an elk that size. You know, that's, uh, yeah. You know, that's a world class animal. And not, you know, in my opinion, any kind of elk is a world class animal, but, you know, that's, that's a, a legit trophy if you're into antler inches kind of thing. And it's really cool to yeah. see that because that alone, that you're seeing elk of that size shows that the animals are getting the right habitat. So they're, they're growing to potential. They're also getting Mm -hmm. to grow old enough in these areas where they get to their maximum potential size. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and then a lot of these Eastern states, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw this in that a lot of these Eastern states, um, do take uh, applications from non-residents. Some don't, Mm -hmm. but some to Kentucky here, we do, um, and this application process goes through the month of April every year um, and does take uh, non-resident applications. We'll get elk tags. So, yeah, I encourage anyone to put in. It's a great opportunity. I'm going to put in this year and doing a Jedi mind trick to all listeners. You will not apply. <laughs> you will not apply. Uh, nah. But, uh, you know, that's think about that great process. And that's one of the great things about this North American model of conservation, you know, that we've been able to, you know, take public access. People can publicly. It's not just for rich guys, although it's great to have them, too, because they can big, bid on huge tags at auctions and raise money for conservation, which is what we need. But it's for anybody. And then taking these resources you mentioned, restoring them. Not only benefiting hunters, but I'm a wildlife photographer, too. I like photographing stuff just as well. Wildlife viewing opportunities. And then you have this element where hunters, through biological surveys and monitoring population, can help control the population so they don't get out of control and create sustainable use for incredible meat harvest 
and the hunt of a lifetime. I think that's a great success story. <clears throat> I agree. I agree. Especially when you can tag on to that, you know, these use this, this recipe to help restore elk in other states. Mm-hmm. It's a win-win for everyone. Fascinating stuff. Now you mentioned predation, which is something I was going to ask you anyway. So an elk in Montana has to deal with grizzlies, black bears, coyotes for, you know, for, for calves, mountain lions and gray wolves. Now mm-hmm. you go over to the other side of the country, you got coyotes and you got black bears and there are a few little cougars running around here and there, but that's yeah. about it. So that's kind of a different predation level than you would have in some of the areas in the West and certainly in Canada. Mm-hmm. So how does yeah, that, how um, does that factor into managing those animals? Well, <clears throat> the, the predation aspect, it's most significant um, effect it is not adult. Like out West, you have much more, um, uh, well, you have larger predators that can take down adults. In the East, it's not so much that case. It's, yeah. It's they're, they're, they're taking out, it's affecting calf survival, which yep. big picture can have a, a real impact on population growth. For sure. But, <clears throat> you know, it, it's, it's interesting. We, we've had, you know, elk put on the landscape. Mm-hmm. These were, you know, totally new to, to most humans in the East. Mm-hmm. Well, they're totally new to bears too. Totally new to coyotes. So there's been a learning curve. And in a lot of states, you know, these animals have adapted to um, learning how to take elk calves. Um, and we've seen impacts in some areas where, um, especially if the, the real, if I could paint a picture, mm-hmm. the, the real impact you could see is you have a really condensed calving area, mm-hmm. maybe one field where, you know, lots of cows love to go. Mm-hmm. They love to go calve in this one field. They're condensed. You know, those first two weeks of life, especially that first week of life, those elk calves aren't too immobile. Cows will um, leave them, just kind of hunker them down in the field and take off, and they'll go feed all day and come back in the evening. Mm-hmm. Well, if those calves are condensed in a small area and predators key in on that, th- those predators are going to uh, strike it rich. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to do well. But when you're managing the population, looking across the landscape, we, we're not seeing them have a detrimental impact mm-hmm. at a population level. Yeah. Um, now, in the southern Appalachian, black bear numbers are continually growing. Yeah. Um, so who's to say that could be a consideration or impetus to increase um, bear harvest regimes in some areas if the desire ever occurred, if those numbers maintain growth above biological or social caring capacity. But um, if nothing else, it makes our human hunts a little more easier knowing those big predators are on the landscape, I think. Yeah, when I was in uh, Yellowstone the first time, which was three years ago, about a half mile away, I watched a sow grizzly and cubs on an elk kill. Uh, And then this time I went back and I photographed uh, two gray wolves. uh, Oh, wow. That were were on the, uh, they were way out, but I got a pretty good shot on an elk kill, you know? So, um, you know, that's just, that's just the natural, what goes on. I mean, that's the way nature works, you know, and predators are cool too. Just got to manage them like we do everything else. You know, they all have to be managed so we can uh, all have this bountiful uh, wildlife resource to enjoy. Now, radio collaring, if it was up to me, there'd be like the Chester Moore sticker radio collar, or satellite transmitter, every wildlife foundation, because I love like seeing where animals move and stuff. So, 
When we come back on More Outdoors, we're going to wrap up our conversation with Steve Doby from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation talking about return of elk east of Texas. Welcome back to More Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. We love sharing incredible hunting, fishing, and conservation information with you. And this interview that I had the privilege of conducting with Steve Doby of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is really mind-blowing because it talks about what I consider to be the greatest modern air recovery of wildlife, the return of elk to east of Texas. You mentioned that earlier. What are some of the results of like radio calling? I mean, where, what kind of movements have you seen with these elk maybe in comparison to what they would move over in the western states? <laughs> Well, certainly at a, at a population level, what we, we don't see in the east are these long-distance migrations. Mm-hmm. Um, because the landscape is not impacted that heavily by seasonal weather patterns, mm-hmm. um, there's not these dramatic, you know, you have this summer range in the west for elk that'll be covered in feet of snow during mm-hmm. the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to move, and, and vice versa for winter habitat. We don't see that in the east. The, the, the temperature, certainly snow cover is not that extreme. And so they certainly move and have large uh, home ranges, mm-hmm. but not these really large um, migration corridors or patterns even for elk. They they're pretty much stay put. And, and, and another part of that is because, you know, the elk habitat well, what we can now call elk habitat is so good, there's no real need to move. Gotcha. Um, a lot of this reclaimed mine land, if, you know, if we can fund habitat work to improve the quality of that forage, those elk have everything they need to mm-hmm. survive there. Mm-hmm. And without, you know, at, at current population numbers, um, as elk numbers continue to grow, that certainly could change. Yeah. Um, but right now we're seeing that uh, they don't have to travel too far to, to get good habitat. And if we want these populations to grow, well, it, it, what the data is looking like now is we just simply need to create or maintain more habitat, mm-hmm. which is nice because then you can almost control where the elk go. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting concept there. Now, um, chronic wasting disease has been something that's, you know, rocked the wildlife world for a long time in terms of elk are sort of at the epicenter of that in certain areas. Has CWD been any kind of, is it complicated like translocations or anything like that? Yes, Mm -hmm. it certainly has. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, you know, for your, for your listeners that don't know, it's, it's it's not, there's no cure for CWD. It's Mm -hmm. a neurological Mm -hmm. um, disease that, the scary thing about CDVD is the long, uh, relatively long latency period where they can be carrying the disease on the landscape, not exhibit any symptoms. Mm-hmm. So by that time, that elk looks skinny, lethargic. It, who knows? It could have been on the landscape for two or three years carrying that and transmitting it to other animals or the environment. Mm-hmm. So it is a very real concern. And because of that, yes, it's, it has impacted restoration efforts because now most state agencies and certainly the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, kind of their their standing message is we're not going to support the movement of, of cervids across state lines. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we've seen is that's one of the key factors in transmitting the disease on the landscape. Yep. Really not for not by elk in the east. This has been the product of white-tailed deer. Yeah. 
Um, but needless to say, those two species do share habitat. They overlap, so there's certainly potential um, for transmission on the, on the wild landscape. You know, um, the whole idea of the translocation thing has been so successful for, you know, even white-tailed deer in Texas were translocated to restore when the eastern part of the state where I live in, they were wiped out and we brought in from South Texas. I've been on a lot of wild turkey restorations and bighorns. This elk thing has been very successful. And I just want to put information like about the CWD challenge and different things out there because to let people know what it takes, it's not just, hey, let's go catch a bunch of elk or catch a bunch of turkeys and put them over here. There's a lot of steps yeah. to get to that point, you know, and I want people to kind of get an idea to better, better respect of those things. Now, what states have had successful or have had elk translocations and have elk, elk populations east of the Mississippi? We've already mentioned Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, Pennsylvania. Are there others? <clears throat> uh, let me see here. Yeah, there's, of course, <coughs> excuse me, um, here in the southern Appalachians, um, we're talking about, uh, obviously, Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, uh, Virginia, Virginia, West Virginia, mm-hmm. all of these southern Appalachian states. We've had elk put on the ground um, since 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these northern tier eastern states, such as Michigan, um, those elk have been, you know, they had elk um Translocation efforts in the early 1900s, but to a large extent, those animals are, you know, on my human timeline, I'd call them native. Yeah. Uh, Minnesota, similar situation, had some elk moved up until the 1930s. Um, Pennsylvania, about the same time period. Wisconsin was kind of the outlier there. We, RMF did partner with the state and Kentucky um, through 2019. We did put for about two years to three years put elk on the ground in wisconsin so it's a pretty wide-ranging area you know that's a really interesting thing to see that like you know like we think of the traditional in our minds elk is you know basically from like new mexico up and then all the way to california yeah. right we think that's kind of what we think of but now it's kind of going back to more of the original roots probably will never be what it was because of habitat changes and vastly more people in the landscape but now all these states you just mentioned, for whatever reason, because people cared enough, are now having elk, thriving elk, increasing elk, which is, which is an awesome thing. I mean, just what an incredible animal. Uh, what got me kind of going down the rabbit hole of this elk restoration thing was where I live in Texas. Texas, believe it or not, elk are not a game animal. Um, Correct. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I'll discuss maybe another program. But we have native populations that kind of move in from New Mexico and all that over in the Trans-Pecos, way over there in the west. And then um, there's been some on high-fence ranches here in East Texas escape. And I know of an area where there is a population. I don't know if it's real big, but I know a couple of hunting clubs that that do like one elk a year. And you draw on your hunting club. And Mm -hmm. there's a breeding here in East Texas, just kind of from escapees, from storms and stuff like that. So I got to think, I need to get back people, make people realize there were elk here. And then I found records of the Spanish seeing elk in the 1500s in Texas and in Louisiana. And it made me think, maybe people need to just hear that there's something, the elk were indigenous to all this range, but now there's even huntable populations out there. So... 
Um, what is the future, do you think, of elk east of the Mississippi? I mean, what do you see on the horizon in the next maybe five years to 10 years in terms of activity, population growth, that kind of thing? Well, obviously, there, it offers tremendous hunting opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many, so many people here in the east uh, every year, that, well, maybe not every year, but many years they do they do try to go out west to hunt yeah <clears throat> and um so it's, it's a it's a th- that change in landscape that uh, with elk on the on the western front that's just an incredible draw for sportsmen and women in the east so i think it'll the, the hunting opportunities will still be a tremendous success and, and fund and fuel a lot of great projects um west of the mississippi mm-hmm. um a lot of legislative issues you know increasingly wildlife management has become a kind of a hot legislative topic in a lot of states yep. maybe not directly related to elk but indirectly by uh predator mm-hmm. management federal classification and designated designation of grizzlies wolves um those are really a lot of hot button issues that do affect elk in the west and so those are issues that'll that'll stay on the radar in the next 10 years for sure mm-hmm. um, protecting and conserving and these migration corridors is going to be uh, i think a significant um opportunity i'll call it that to, to keep these populations as, you know healthy as they are now yeah. for the next 10 20 years uh, everybody wants to live in the uh, these these beautiful um western mountain range um but, you know, it doesn't take some really interesting research showing the impacts that uh, even minimal human disturbance can cause on elk and, and pronghorn, mule deer, whitetail movement patterns. Yeah. So uh, that'll be an interesting challenge. Yeah, for keeping sure. Keeping those corridors protected. When we come back on More Outdoors, we're going to jump into our sci-fly fishing segment. We're going to teach you some far-out strategies for catching more and bigger fish. Welcome back to the program. It's time to get us some sci-fly fishing where we test the outer limits of flats, streams, shore, and fly fishing. It's our new segment here on More Outdoors. and excited to share some of my great passions with you. And one of my great passions is the pursuit of largemouth bass in small waterways, particularly on ponds. I have access to uh, a number of ponds in Orange County where I live, and I spend a lot of time fly fishing them. As a matter of fact, I would say on a minimum week, I'll go twice, sometimes three or four times, maybe 30 minutes, maybe two hours. Uh, Whenever I can squeeze that time out, usually early in the morning or right before dark, and getting out there and going for the ultimate goal of catching bass on the fly. And... For people who aren't experienced fly fishermen, maybe you want to pick up a fly rod, there's a lot of great reasons to do it. So I'm going to give you five tips for fishing bass on ponds with fly gear. I use a five-weight rod, and that's good enough for pretty much any bass I'm going to probably catch in there. I've caught bass up to four pounds, and I've caught a few other fish like catfish a little bigger on that. That wasn't on purpose, but it was really cool to catch a catfish on the fly. Uh, So I'm using a five-weight. And one of the main things that I like to do is I always like to have a grasshopper pattern in my box for bass. Um, In local waterways 
and in any of these ponds, you're going to have, especially in the spring and all the way through summer, you're going to have a lot of grasshoppers and crickets. And I like to have grasshopper patterns from little tiny ones on up to about three inches long. If you can get a hold of those guys, I like to have them in various colors because I have found that when you throw these, you can even have you know ones that are subsurface or ones that are a dry fly. Dry fly means floats or a topwater type thing. I prefer the dry fly kind for uh, bass on these ponds and stuff. And I, early and late, it will initiate a very, very aggressive strike for a bass. And one of the advantages of fishing ponds with fly gear is you get to throw with a very delicate throw. Uh, everyone fishes these ponds with spinner baits and big top waters and crank baits and really loud, obtrusive stuff on small waters. But I have found, and I have done this numerous times, that I outfish people throwing traditional bass gear with a fly rod, not all the time, but almost every time I'm there. So take this thing out and throw and let it sit. And my rule is when I throw any of these lures out, I let them sit a minimum of five seconds. Ten seconds is good because a lot of times you'll throw it and they'll come swimming up and I can see them in clear water checking it out. And uh, then I'll just move it slowly along the surface and get struck a lot. Big brim will also hit this. And if you see bass, obviously throw that thing out there and throw it, if you can, a few feet in front of the bass because a bass will swim a pretty long way to strike at one of these things. Uh, good colors are brown, kind of like a cream color, and black. I like black a lot, especially in dingier water. The second tip for catching bass in these ponds is for high pressure days. You know, we have a lot of days where the barometric pressure is high that, you know, some people have nosebleeds, headaches, and stuff on that. It literally has been proven to give fish headaches. So fish slows down. You hear about bluebird skies and after a front, like the day after a front, and it slows the fishing down. Well, that's when I will downgrade. And I like to fish a little fly, a little nymph, uh, about, you know, half an inch long. And I like the color, my favorite color, and I've mentioned this before, is a black body with a red tail or a little bit of orange on it. And that's my go-to, and I fish that thing, and I will just let it sit there and just sink down almost it goes to the bottom, then move it along, make a few hops, make other casts, and make fan casts around the area, trying to cover the entire perimeter, and that works great for bass. Now, other colors work good as well. You know, if I'm not going to catch them on the black, that usually means they've been a lighter color, so I'll take like that lighter kind of fawn color or work like that, even white. But I like stuff with contrast, so if I had a white one, I would have white with red, or I would have white with a little black in it. Something to make a contrast, a small nymph fly works really really good for bass and ponds something else you want to consider is using on your tippet fluorocarbon uh, especially at the end of your tippet because um, i'm telling you right now pond fish get pounded and they get line shy i've watched it before i've been in places where i've been even with traditional gear fishing um you know i fish eight pound tippet a lot um but you know if you think you're going to be getting a bigger fish using a strategy like I'm about to talk about, you might want to go with a 12-pound tippet. Or so. I know guys that use 20-pound tippets um, for bass. And the other strategy I want to share with you is using poppers. A popper is a topwater for fly fishing, and I use them a lot. I used to use them almost exclusively for bass, fishing some more vegetating-laden ponds. I didn't want to get snagged, but I've learned to use a lot of other stuff. 
poppers work really, really well. And the key for me has been the cadence. So I will take a little popper and I will throw and let it sit five to 10 seconds in the water. We already talked about the, you know, up to 10 seconds, but at least five. And then pop it once, let it sit five seconds, pop it, let it sit. And many times the fish will often hit at about the four second mark. Uh, so I would say the average is probably the three second mark. There's something about that five second gap that gets a fish. It's like there's a balance between working it too slow and too fast. And I think five seconds is great. Now, I have used some larger poppers. And those larger poppers are probably two and a half inches long and caught a few fish. But I have found no correlation between bigger popper and bigger bass. And I was talking with my good friend, Captain Steve Stubby, also called Captain Scooby, who is a Mudfish Adventures up on Toledo Bend. He makes custom fly rods. has a custom fly ship up there. Check him out. And um, he was saying he has a hard time catching bass on big poppers up there that, you know, kind of the regular size poppers worked better for him than really big stuff, which is interesting because people throw super spooks and all kind of big stuff, but you can use uh, a smaller popper. Um, I will use like a half inch popper and an inch long popper. And um, I like a B pattern that works really good for me. The standard white works as well. And also my favorite fly color of anything is black and red. Those three work really well for me. And um, the thing you're going to have to have is patience. So when they hit, you'll see them hit a lot. And then you're going to have to actually let the fish take it for a second. Then when you feel that pressure of them, then set the hook. And if you're used to like rainbow trout fishing with a fly rod where you kind of lay the fly over the rod over the side and then barely jerk, um, you don't do that with the bass. You know, you want to put a bigger hook set on the bass. As a matter of fact, after it's taken it and he's running a little bit, you can set again to make sure you have that thing on there. Uh, and then the kind of the final of our five tips for this more outdoor sci-fi fishing segment would be to also, when you're out there looking for these fish and you start getting a lot of bites in one location and then they stop suddenly, move. Uh, I have a theory because it's proven that fish put out electronic signals. I mean, and uh, you can, I believe when they get distressed and they strike and they put and they maybe you have one hooked and caught, uh, they put out signals that kind of let other fish know something's going on and maybe distress signals. So um, move, you know, move 50 yards down, move 100 yards, move the other side of the pond or somewhere else and then come back in like an hour. And I have found almost every time, if the general bite is still on, that window is still on, you'll catch fish there. But if you stay in the one spot after you get a lot of blow-ups or catch two or three fish, um, you're not going to catch anymore. This is very, very true for bass, slightly true for larger bluegill, but they'll, they'll, they'll bite more, especially in the spring when they're really aggressive and spawning. But I have found that these things make a big difference in my bass fishing on the fly efforts and uh, it's something i'm very very proud of and we're going to actually start a series here on our side fly fishing segment on catching bass on the fly um and it's going to be a it's going to be a three-part series and it's going to really dissect and stuff but i thought i'd give you a good teaser this week and next week we'll talk about some saltwater fly fishing strategies and also just side fly fishing is not just about uh, fly fishing. It's also about, you know, shore and wade. So we're going to talk about some stuff with shore and wade fishing, some equipment type stuff and things like that. 
in a next week's segment to really help you out when you go out there fishing for speckled trout in particular. And I uh, love this stuff. I love the fact that to share all this with you. And I love the fact that you guys give me great feedback. If you've got any questions, email me at chester at chestermore.com. Email me at chester at chestermore.com about anything you want to talk about, whether it's sci-fi fishing, uh, strategies that I've come up with, or just wildlife stuff on the program, or program suggestions, interview suggestions. Uh, I'm so grateful to be here. You can catch me at the Chestermore on Instagram, Higher Calling Wildlife on Facebook, HigherCalling.net, the blog. God bless you, and have a great outdoors weekend.